Hello and welcome to another episode of Enviro Combos. I'm your host, Jacob King, and today I am really excited to have Jesse Panazzolo, the lonely conservationist. Jesse, how are you? Good, thanks. I love being called the lonely conservationist because <laughs> that is how I felt when I created the platform, but I hope that would all be lonely together but sometimes I get an email being like hi the lonely conservationist and I'm like oh is that me am I the loneliest one <laughs> <laughs> well that, that's the irony of your platform isn't it the, uh, that you're the lonely conservationist with a group of other lonely conservationists we're not so lonely anymore yes it's it's brilliant so so Jesse we're we're, we're going to talk about lonely conservationists what what is it? Do you want to give us a little bit of a background and about yourself and how you sort of came to be the lonely conservationist? Sure. Well, I actually started my journey when I was toilet training at three years old. <laughs> um, my mum went to Canada for a wedding. I couldn't go with her, but she bought me back a stuffed toy gorilla. And that really sparked an interest in primates for me. And to the extent that when I was five, I was asking her how I could save the orangutans because I'd learned about deforestation and palm oil and all that kind of stuff. And that's the moment I realized that parents don't really have the answer to everything. So I set out on this lifelong journey to find out the answers for myself. Um, so I basically did everything I could um, from the age of five to get myself in a conservation career. I went to an agricultural high school, then I did my undergraduate um, in biodiversity and conservation. In every Christmas holidays, I would travel overseas to get some like hands-on conservation experience closer to the equatorial country because here in Australia we don't have any primates so I had to travel to get some experience there and then in 2014 after my undergraduate I started my first um, work with the gateway primate which is lemurs <laughs> they're a bit of a stepping stone to monkeys and apes um, and then I started my honours degree in 2016 in North Sumatra, Indonesia, where I finally, after all those years, at 26 years old, finally got to be trying to find out the answers to my questions of how I could save the orangutans. And it was at that point that I was doing amazing research on um, newly restored forest habitat. So my organization um, paid the palm oil farmers to chop down their palm oil and revegetate the forest. So I was looking at this matrix of forest of different ages and what was living in there. And it turned out that if you planted a tree five years later, it would be big enough for an orangutan to nest in it and even elephants to live in that area too. So I was like, whoa, if we're in year eight, we can plant a tree. And by the time we're in year 12 and graduating, an orangutan could live in that tree, which means it's really um, acceptable, like accessible to and tangible to be able to revegetate this forest and save the orangutans. But one day I was standing in my field site and I see all the, the mums um, planting trees and growing seedlings in the nursery with their children and passing on that knowledge. And I saw the, the fathers and they were out um, watering the plants and caring for the revegetated forest. And I realized that I just didn't belong there if I really truly cared about sustainable change and um, cultural and knowledge passing on from generation to generation, because I could see that that was a really important part about conserving the forest long-term. So I came home, long story short, had to invent my whole life again, because ever since I was five, I was on this one journey. And I had a lot of sociopathic bosses, a lot of horrible experiences, not a lot of pay. 
until 2019, I decided that I was going to pick an NGO um, that I thought was respectable and I was going to volunteer there as much as I could until they hired me. So basically I was in the office every day, uh, five days a week, eight hours a day doing complex data analysis and report writing until I found out that the I was my work was having funding implications for the organization and I was making them money, but they still refused to pay me. So my friend basically gave me an intervention and what said that as long as I was giving so much work for free, they were never going to pay me. And so the next day I found myself moping on my couch thinking my life in conservation was over. Um, but then I got a message from my friend who was also struggling, which made me realize there might be more of us out there not living the glamorous life that you see all over the internet and documentaries. So I went to my computer and started a blog called Lonely Conservationist to tell my story. And after about a week, I had hundreds of other people um, join my community and had people share their story alongside mine. And now it's been three years later and every uh, week for three years, we've had a new blog of somebody from around the world sharing their story and almost 6,000 lonely conservationists in the community. So it turned out that I definitely wasn't alone and it kind of set me on a new path to be a conservationist conservationist. So yeah, that's my life story. That's 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 brilliant. That's such a good story, and I guess it's that whole you know you never know where life is going to take you kind of uh, kind of moment, isn't it? You know, yeah, that, yeah sure. you, you thought you were going to be uh, doing one thing, and the next moment you're you're doing something which is completely different but entirely related. So that's that's a really cool story. Uh, story, excuse me. Um, yeah, I I guess. It's, it touches on so many different issues and um, I'm, I'm most of the way through your book and it, what, that, what your book highlights, uh, and I'm reading How to, How to Conserve Conservationists, and it's a really good read for anyone, um, for anyone out there, but what, what it touches on is that this industry is sort of in a really tedious position that it looks glamorous from the outside. You get so many people wanting to come through and volunteer and it's it's actually very tough to to break in and actually make ends meet um, in in the industry. And I guess that's something that you've highlighted in your book. And I guess is is that your experience that it is you know that that really hard thing? But also, is it something that is fixable? Well. To confirm that it was my experience, I finally got a livable wage this year at <laughs> 28 <laughs> years old. And considering I like I knew from the get-go that conservation was a space I wanted to be in, um, taking almost 30 years to have a livable wage is not an experience that everyone has if they want to be like a carpenter or an electrician or have basically any other career. Um, so it is challenging. And I think the way around this is what I've found is being a purist conservationist is challenging because there's so much competition and also a lot of exploitation. Um, there's a lot of passionate people in the conservation industry. So it's really easy if somebody's not having a good time to just replace them with another bright eyed um, young conservationist. So what I found is really, really important in the industry, if you do want to not make all the mistakes that I did, is kind of pair your conservation um, skills with another skill. So basically, um, 
a couple of years ago, I transitioned from being just a strict conservationist to being a sustainability educator. And to get into the education world gave me so many more opportunities. And um, I think like having a specialty of sustainability or conservation in your teaching is really important um, because it gives you a distinction to stand out. But also I had stories from the field and knew about the content from firsthand experience. So it kind of made my teaching more engaging. Um, so if you're like, if you have an interest in conservation, it may be easier to find skills that you're good at and pursue them with a conservation focus instead of just trying to get a conservation career because um, it just seems impossible for some people, especially if you have families to support, if you're from a low socioeconomic area um, and they call conservationist careers like only accessible to trust fund babies because of just the amount of volunteering and free work it takes. And that's a very privileged position that you have to be in to do that amount of free work. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's a challenging one to navigate. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely is. And I think, you know, um, something that I, I read in, in your book, Ian, was that, you know, you don't find a, a bricklayer that has to do volunteer work to then get a career in laying bricks. You know, why, why, is, it any other dif why is it different in any other area, especially, you know, if you've gone through all that hard work of uh, becoming educated, uh, understanding the you know the scientific background to all this sort of thing, to have to go and then you know volunteer your life away until eventually you hope to crack into the uh, into the industry and get a paid paid gig. Just it just doesn't set, it just doesn't seem like we you know what we should be doing, especially in the the twenty first century. You know that it's uh, uh, people should be able to make a living doing you know doing whatever it is that that they love you know we we have people who make online videos who dance for a living uh, you know making short one minute videos on tiktok and things like that and it, it just doesn't seem like it should be really hard to break into a an industry that's so important to the future of so many species um it, it, you know, it's crazy to me yeah and the craziest thing to me is that this has always been important like especially being in australia we have a very clear line where we were very um, sustainable country and then when colonization happened all that went up in the air um, English people brought over hoofed animals and they farmed everything and they undid basically all of our sustainable practices um, and basically like ever since colonization in our country conservation efforts have been needed and necessary and so it's not like it's um it's not like it's something that people want to do for pleasure or something that is like a fun um like an not to, I don't want to um, discredit the arts because I think they're very important, but mm, conservation definitely. is like, is something that we all need to keep safe, especially with bushfires and like how we live on the earth really depends on how we look after it. It's not something we just do for fun or entertainment. So I don't understand why it hasn't been more respected as a necessary career or a necessary um just thing that happens <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. My brain's not yeah, working okay. today. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, neither's mine yet. So um, I guess is it something like is it because you are getting, I guess, in theory at least, getting up close and personal with these animals that are so rare and, and so endangered? Do you think that, you know, that that fear of missing out, that getting close to to something so cool is what's causing it to be a problem as well? 
Um, in terms of having people not respect or understand the career? Uh, just, oh, sorry, just, just to, like, you know, it, there's so many volunteers and so many people that want to do this, uh, but yet it's not, it's not beautiful um, work. A lot of it's, well, it is beautiful work, but it's not, you know, like glamorous. It's, it's getting down and dirty a lot of the time and getting, you know, in the mud and actually doing hands-on work. So, so why are there so many people who are clamoring to get there? It's because the industry is very glamorous. And I think before I started talking about it, not to say that nobody talked about it before me, but there was definitely a fear of talking about the truth of what was happening in the industry because the competition was so high and the paid opportunities were so slim on the ground that nobody wanted to complain, which meant nobody ever talked about the bad sides of the conservation industry and everyone kept doing pay-to-work volunteerism and they kept doing uh, really dodgy things because nobody was talking about why it was so bad. And even you notice in my book, I don't out any of the organizations that have wronged me or talked about any of the people because like, to be honest, I still have PTSD from some of the bosses that I've had or the situations that I've been in to re-engage with them or to have them come at me now and, and start anything again. That would be awful. So I think there's like a couple of layers of fear. One, the fear from the people and the way we were treated and we don't want to get back into that situation again. Two, not being not talking about it for the fear of not having any conservation opportunities in the future. And to be really honest with you, the only reason why I wrote my initial blog and was honest is because I thought I had tried every single thing in my life possible to be in the conservation industry. If I hadn't made it in like 26 years or however long it took me to get to Lonely Conservationist, like how, what could I do differently? I already got an honors degree. I've had like experience in seven different countries. Like I have worked extensively in Australia. I had all these contacts, like I knew the stuff. What more could I do to get in? So I would never have told my story and felt okay enough to be honest if I thought I had something to lose. Um, and that is why people still clamber to get in in the same way that I did in the same way a lot of people do instead of taking a different approach is because if they only see David Attenborough documentaries and people's glamorous uh, social media posts they aren't exposed to the truth of what these projects actually entail yeah okay that, that makes you know it's a it's a hard road to, to get to a, a good endpoint and I, and I want to sort of touch on that your blog now and and you know how you know, it, it got started from very, um, you know, these almost sad point of saying, well, you know, this world isn't, this conservation world isn't isn't going to be for me. It, it's I can't break in, and then sort of found a, a bit a bit of a happy accident to sort of say like there was a whole community behind this. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'd I'd like to sort of push into the blog and sort of say like like sort of understand, you know, what it, how did it feel in that moment then you realized that you weren't alone as well and that other people were in this situation with you uh it was the best feeling i'd ever felt in my life <laughs> i just think because like i legitimately thought i was the loneliest conservationist in the world like i had no idea that anybody else was struggling like even though i had worked in conservation organizations for a long time with other volunteers and they weren't necessarily happy at the time i thought like there's something about when they return home and you don't think about their lives like you think about your own like for instance when I was overseas and um, I was so immersed in my conservation world and I was doing research and presenting and then like immersed in a different culture and I came home and everyone's 
looking at their screens and so detached. And I just felt so isolated that I couldn't comprehend that anybody else could feel like I felt or understand how I felt. So to have, so to write my story and then have somebody else say, I feel the same to the extent that I'm going to share my story alongside yours and validate what you've said and then have other people do that every single week after that. It was just like the fact that people have been submitting stories from all corners of the globe for three years is just like the most radical thing. Like I could never have predicted that this was going to happen considering how lonely and isolated and like defeated I felt at the time. Yeah. It's yeah. And magical. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I guess that, you know, there's that really nice feeling when you do something for someone else. And I, I guess every time you receive a story, you must relive that feeling as well, right? Like you know that, you know, that feeling of sort of thinking that you're alone in this and to, to find this, you know, let's say another conservationist finds this blog and says, yes, finally, someone else who understands like that, that must be a really nice, joyful feeling for yourself as well. And it definitely is. And I've learned so much about myself from other people's blogs because they might have had the same experiences as me and dealt with it in a different way or talked to different people about it or got different insights. So there's blogs that I've spent the first half of the blog relating to and being like, whoa, this could be my diary. And the second half being like, whoa, they did this. They learned this about themselves. Like maybe I have this. Maybe I should like seek help for dealing with this. Like I feel like the blogs have taught me a lot about myself that I never would have uncovered without this experience either. So it's been, this is the importance of sharing and talking because while we kept everything so hidden, everyone just suffered thinking they were the only one alone. And I think that's, some people say like, oh, everyone's together now. Why do you keep the name Lonely Conservationist? It's because our community is accumulation of all these people that at one time did feel completely isolated in their experiences. So I think having still the notion that we are lonely, but together, I think is really important that we, I don't know, it just encourages the sharing and this communication and making sure that nobody ever has to feel this alone again in the industry. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you, you, you touched on it there is the, the fact that, a, a job, a career is impacting, you know, so many people's mental health in such a negative way is, is just really not, not, you know, it's not a good thing. And, and we as a society don't focus enough on mental health and, and looking after mental health. Uh, and traditionally, you know, it's getting better and better, which is amazing. But traditionally, you know, that ability to open up and talk and, and find a platform to actually like, you know, have that bit of release and release a bit of that, that angst and, and that, you know, clutter that sits in your brain is just so, so brilliant. And I bet there's, there's got to be, you know, there's thousands of people out there saying thank you for, for saying what you said. Um, yeah, no, I think it's a really cool platform. I think I love when people actually take the time to message me and say thank you because it. I think like I can still feel lonely as the creator of this community. Sometimes there's this pressure to run everything or to keep it afloat or like no matter how I'm feeling, I have to carry the movement forward. So it's so special to me when people have found the community from like an article or they've stumbled across it or recommended by a friend and they take the time to say like, thanks for creating this space or I respect the work that you're doing or it's really influenced or like touched me or I relate. I didn't know anybody else was feeling like that. It's definitely what keeps me going because I think like it was also challenging because uh, until this year I haven't had like 
a stable job to support myself while doing this. So I was toying with the idea of trying to make Lonely Conservationist something that was viable, which is really challenging because I don't want to profit off of the vulnerability of a community. So at some stage, I was doing a lot of work, hosting a lot of events, being like a project manager basically for free. So I really relied on the praise of others and like how much I was helping them as my payment to keep going basically. Um, So the kindness of strangers, there's no telling how much that means to someone and how much that's going to make their day. So thank you to all those people. and uh yeah make, make sure you do go check out the the blog and and if you get something out of it send a message to say to say thank you yeah um, i'm always here I'm, I'm not this omnipresence that's like some people say like well i'm surprised you returned my message but of course like this is a community and i want everyone to feel like seen and heard and i'm not just this social media guru on the other side just looking for likes i really feel like this is a hundred percent a community that people can interact with and and find their people yeah brilliant no that's 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 amazing um i want to take a little bit of a turn and and talk about your uh, your book the how to conserve conservationists i guess this is almost it almost feels like it's the next step after the blog, it's kind of like the um, the, the survival guide behind the, the blog. Do you, do you want to take a minute just to sort of have a have a brief overview of what what the book entails? Sure. So I think I was getting frustrated with in, the internet and how you can only give snapshots of information to people at a time. So I feel like some people were reading the blogs, some people were just on Instagram, some people were seeing bits and pieces, but nobody was getting the real cohesive story. And I felt like I'd learned so much since starting Lonely Conservationist that I really needed to share this information in a big cohesive way. So that's what inspired the book is um, to have the opportunity to pass on everything that I'd learned Uh, in a way that was digestible and totally comprehensible to the reader. Um, And basically, it's kind of a survival guide. It helped, the aim of the book was to try and help you and your experiences feel normalized, but also have your friends and family understand what you're going through at the same time, because I think that's really important. Um, And basically, every chapter ends with, uh, if you see a wild conservationist, you should do this, this and this. So I hope that it's... um, it's easy to read because it's from personal experiences. It's not like uber scientific or anything. Um, it's just me sharing my recommendations of what would have really helped me throughout my time in conservation. Yeah, cool. Uh, and I can sort of vouch that it is, the, the book is written in a very conserva- uh, conversational way. It does feel like, you know, I'm sitting there having a chat with you while I'm reading the book. You know, it does, it's very, very easy to read. It's very easy to um absorb that information and, and very, very well written, written and, and it's entertaining as well. It's got some uh, good quips through the, uh, <laughs> through the At the start, I was like, is this bad that I've written the way I talk? <laughs> it just seems like what? I should have been uh, more professional in the way that I wrote, but I think I just wanted to captivate like my essence. And if, I don't know, I would like it to feel like everyone's having a conversation with me. It's just a shame that I don't get to be involved in all these conversations personally. No, it, it is. It's a, it's a good book. And I, I think, you know, it's important, you know, anyone that is maybe struggling out there um, in not necessarily just the conservation arena, but any arena, you know, some of these things can apply to across 
you know, lots and lots of different things, you know, like maybe, for example, you know, like you touched on art before, there could be an artist out there who's not feeling appreciated. And, and I think the book is applicable to, to a lot of different things. You know, it's, it's written with the intent of conservationists, but yeah, anyone could pick it up and read it and understand where you're coming from in that, that toil of work, you're working for free and, and doing it for love and, and not necessarily getting the, the monetary reward of it. And, and yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a valuable read for, for a lot of people. So, so well done for, for putting it out there. <laughs> I think it's crazy because I have a whole chapter about imposter syndrome, but I still have mad imposter syndrome about this book. I don't know why. It's like just something I want to tell people and like just be a conservation, not anything too fancy or formal. But there's something about like putting your thoughts out there into the world for them to be critiqued. It's just very yeah. daunting. So I appreciate the positive feedback. Um, yeah, no, of, of course. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, we'll... I'll circle back to the book towards the end. Um, but while we've got a minute, there is one section of the book and I really want to know the background to it. Okay. And you might say no to this, but can I know the story about how you ended up running away from tigers? Oh, uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I was like, should I put this whole story in? But it doesn't really seem relevant. Um, <laughs> uh, basically. That's, that's great. We'll do it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Extra content. Um <laughs> So basically, my honours project was about orangutans, but it was also about elephants. And I really knew nothing about elephants. So I spent a couple of weeks before my honours in Malaysia, before I jetted off to Indonesia, working with some PhD students. Um, and one of them took me to uh, Marapo Taman Nagara, which is Marapo National Park. And we started off along this trail to Guagaja, which means elephant caves in the local dialect. Um, and it was very obvious that it was elephant caves because there was big elephant footprints the whole way along the path we were walking. And the trend is in the tropical rainforest uh, to wear like um, reef shoes or waterproof shoes. Like people aren't wearing hiking boots because it's just so wet and muddy that they get wet every time you go out, they don't have time to drive. So I was in these like waterproof socks and reef shoes, like very not practical footwear. Um, we're heading into the caves. And when we got there, me being a little like ignorant Australian with nothing scary in the forest, <laughs> it's like, oh, let's go in. And all of a sudden, um, these two field guides that we were with, there were local uh, indigenous guides that didn't even speak Bahasa Malay. They spoke their own dialect. They're basically like yelling at us to get out and run. Um, and so we just start running and I didn't understand why we were running. I was like, are they afraid of bats? Like, I don't understand. We're just running out of the caves into the forest until I hear this roar. And I see yeah. behind me one of the um, local staff grabbing, like he had a machete in his hand as he's running. He's cutting down a tree, um, carving it into a spear and like holding it behind him as we all ran in front. Cause obviously tigers are ambush predators and they'll get the one from behind. <laughs> And it was just like so surreal. I felt like I was in a nightmare because it was like so muddy and my shoes were not well equipped and I was sinking into the mud with every step that I took. And so we just basically kept running and running and running until we didn't hear or see anything anymore. And the guys told us we could stop in this clearing. And I was just like amazed because I did not have breakfast that morning because the PhD student I was with did not he wasn't a breakfast person but I very much am so now I kind of have the mentality that if I could run from a tiger without breakfast then maybe I'm more functional in the morning than I thought <laughs> <laughs> that is an insane story 
Yeah, this and, is the conservation lifestyle that is like you may not make it out alive some days. Yeah, no, that's that that, that would have been <laughs> insanely scary, and especially you're probably sit thinking there, going, "Oh yeah, when I get back, I could could really go some a big lunch, and then all of a sudden there's a tiger chase you." Uh, yeah. <laughs> average nine to five. Yeah, yep. And then when I was doing my honors in Malaysia, I had a similar experience where the field guides were smoking and like irritating the uh, mother orangutan. She had this baby with her, and she w- she was kiss squeaking at them, which is a kind of a sign of like you're pissing me off, please leave. <laughs> and so yeah. they they started kiss squeaking back to her, and she got really annoyed. So she reached over to the neighboring tree, grabbed it, started rocking it back and forth, ripped it out of its roots and chucked it in our direction. And then for the second time, I was running for my life through the forest from a big animal chucking a tree at me. And then my leg halfway through running, got caught between two skinny little trees. And I had this moment of like, oh my God, the thing that I've worked my whole life is to protect is the thing that's going to kill me. But as I like dislodged my leg from the tree and like dove out of the way, I hear it fall somewhere else. And I was like, thank God. Um, But yeah, yeah, it's it's not uh, an easy nine to five. Let me just say that. (laughs) Yeah. And, and they're moments that, I mean, I guess looking back there, they're probably moments that you, you look on quite, quite fondly, but at the moment they would have been, insanely scary and um yeah look we're, we're really happy that you did make it out and uh you are able to to tell the story of you know <laughs> being chased by tigers and you know trees chucked at you by orangutans and all these other things that you know these other stories that i'm sure you've got back in the vault yeah yeah somebody's like why don't you just write a book of these stories and i'm like mm, probably too traumatic <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's all the I'm times pretty- i was about to die the compilation <laughs> <laughs> Um, look, that's that's an amazing story, and I, I think look, we're we're getting close to the end of our time. But one thing I would really like to do is um, I'd like to actually give away a couple of copies of your your latest edition of the How to Conserve Conservationists. So very simply, all you have to do is head over to our Instagram page and uh, we'll make a post detailing the rules of the giveaway, but more or less all you have to do is tag your favourite conservationist, follow myself and Bioconvos, and follow the Lonely Conservationist, and uh, you'll give that conservationist a chance to win a copy of Jesse's new book. That's so sweet. That's such a good so, idea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I really like the idea of, you know, this, the, the community that you built is, uh, you know, you, as much as you built it for you, it is a community and it is about, you know, including everyone. And I, I'd really like it, you know, the book to go to someone who who wants to, to read it and who needs to read it maybe. Um, yeah, make sure you get there and, we'll, and I'll post, um, I'll make a post with all the instructions once uh, once this podcast goes live. But yeah. Tag your, tag your favourite conservationists, tell them that you appreciate them and um, maybe we can get them a copy of How to Conserve Conservationists. And do borrow the book. I have a lot of people being like, oh, I feel bad for not buying it and supporting you, but I lent it to my friend or I borrowed it from this. No, please. I give all of my books away, like books that I read. I find people in my life that I think they would benefit from reading it and I hand them over, like book giving and swapping is a huge part of my life and I think it's really valuable and especially in the conservation industry where not everyone can afford books all the time it's really um, a great way of 
embracing that community by sharing the book and talking about it after you've both read it. So definitely don't feel bad if you're sharing the book amongst your friends. Like I definitely encourage it. Yeah, brilliant. And um, yeah, I guess um, to, to finish up, Jesse, if there is any conservation out, conservationists out there and they are still looking to, to get into the, you know, to break in and get that paid gig and, and live their life as a conservationist, do you have any, any final words before we, uh, we end today to, to sort of spur them on? Yeah, what is your skill that's outside of conservationists? Like I talked about how mine's education. My partner came to help me in um, Indonesia and he is like, he's not a conservationist at all, but he's a technology focused man. And so he was helping fly drones to map the forest and find out where the orangutan nests are. Like maybe you're good at art. And I've had so many amazing artists in the community illustrate my books and create logos for me. Um, there's so no matter what your skill is embrace that because it can be tied into conservation whether it's crocheting or sports or doctors or nurses like whatever your skill is it's way better to pursue that with a conservation focus than to try and become a purist conservationist and that's probably the best advice I could give that's amazing thank you so much for your time this morning it's been an absolute pleasure um, I am still on the edge of my seat from thinking about being chased by tigers. Um, it's a great way to wake up at half past six in the morning. Yeah, I'm <laughs> on you just... even get up at half past six to talk to me. That's um, uh, I feel very special. <laughs> no, of, of course, it was definitely worth it. I really appreciate your time. And yeah, we'll, we'll be back in touch, I'm sure, um, to, to, to see how things are going in the future. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jacob. I look forward to it.